Happy Mother's Day. I realize that we prayed for the mothers like as we're dismissing kids. So it's like all the moms are actually gone from the room when we're praying for you. But know that you were prayed for and that God heard it and that he will answer it regardless of your presence in the room or not. So, and it was very encouraging. It was very well done. So uh, it was a good prayer. Um, in the book of John, which we've been tracking through, there are a lot of really famous moments that bring out these famous quotes. Like they're the quotes that people, we use in culture, regardless of your familiarity with scripture or not. Uh, one of which, the most arguably famous book in the Bible, at least in modern Western culture, is John 3.16. And beyond that, you get at the woman of the well, he without sin be the first to ca or cast the first stone. Or you get today, that if you abide in the truth, the truth will set you free, which, again, they're like lines that are classic. If John was a movie, these would be like the movie quotes. And not only that, these liter this literally has been a movie quote. I think in multiple movies, the main reference I can think of is Jim Carrey shouting at the end of Liar, Liar when he finally discovers the way to get his client uh, dismissed of all charges. But it shows up a lot, and again, you can say it in any context, and people may know it's from Scripture, people may not, but they generally know, yeah, the truth will set you, and then people can finish the sentence. And typically, I think it's understood, it may be generally in culture, that if you finally break from lies and tell the truth, then you will be free from the trap of lies in which you have been in, where you tell one lie and you have to do another lie and eventually lie and eventually you built your whole life on a lie. And if you tell the truth, you're set free. And then there's, if you're reading it in this context, there's ways that I think we understand it semi-accurately, but also not accurately. And the two ways are this. These are, these are not less than true, it's just that this statement is more than just these things. So the first one, at Christians, we do this. To know the truth, and the truth will set you free, is to know and confess the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and that will set you free. That is true. That is something that we built, and I built, and this church has built our entire identities around. But this phrase, while not less than that, is more than that. Here's another version of what we do, that by understanding and continually gaining more wisdom and knowledge, truth, we will slowly but surely be transformed by the renewing of our minds, which actually is pulling on a scripture in Romans 12, verse 2, the do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And what's been going on, let me just catch this up really quick on the context, because this idea, and I want to really quickly kind of like expand out, it's more than those two things, it's not less than those two things, but it's more. Really quick, here's the context where we've been. We have been since chapter 7 in a long back and forth between Jesus and the crowds at the temple during the Feast of Booths, or the Sukkot, or the time where they would go and they would make out in the wilderness satched roof booths so that they would remind themselves that they wandered in the desert and God provided for them in the desert and they would do festivals like 
they would do the festival of, uh, of light and the festival of water, the festival of water which would be pouring out water, reminding that God in the desert provided them water and it's his provision and his grace, and that the festival of light would be in the middle of the night with no, natural, or no light pollution and having these huge bowls of fire to remind them of the pillar of fire that guided them and they would direct them in the middle of the wilderness. And so he's been here and he's been teaching and he's constantly been forming mixed opinions about himself, or people have been forming mixed opinions about him. And right now, this is interesting. I, I don't know how I've not noticed this before, because it's really plain, and I'm sure a lot of you are like, wow, this is not really that profound. I've known this the whole time. But I notice if we, when we start in 30, the group that he's talking to, the group that he is now going to be going back and forth with, and also at the end of this are going to pick up stones to stone him, are described as the group who believed in him. Verse 30, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. I guess I've always kind of thought, again, these are the ones who are stoning him. This is like the Jewish leaders that were just like looking for a chance to be able to do it, or this is the crowds that are like, man, you got a demon, which they are going to say. However, that's not going to be the ones who just like rejected him or said he's crazy, or does anyone come from Galilee, or, you know, can a prophet come from Galilee? It's not those ones. It's actually the ones who described. Jesus is now teaching the ones who actually said, holy cow, this is the prophet, this is the Messiah. And so it's to them that he jumps into this idea of, hey, if you abide in the truth, you will know, and the truth, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And again, I want to not attack, but flesh out this idea of just gaining understanding, confessing the truth of the gospel. And I think the reason that we land there, which again is very true, is because we often are coming at Scripture with a modern and Western context. And I, we talk about this a lot. We talk about Western context, and sometimes it's just like we kind of like just leave it ambiguous of what is Western context. Western context or Western thinking is the way that the West or Rome, Greece, and all of the Europe that came from that, and then eventually North America, which came, and the, you know, our culture, which came from Europe, and all of this culture that has spread across the Western world has a specific way of thinking, a specific way of doing things, and it has developed separately from the Eastern world, which is things where you get out like the Byzantine Empire, and you get, you know, Constantinople, and you get, you know, the Eastern Orthodox Church, and this church goes two different ways, and you eventually get the East and the West, and the East and the West function in very different ways, and a few of them that we can just namely know or we talk about a lot. The West tends to focus in an individual idea of culture that we think about the individual, and the East thinks of a communal culture. And we sometimes bag on the individual culture because it's just like such the air we breathe. It's actually not a bad thing. It actually was a good thing. In fact, this group is going to struggle with the implications of knowing the truth from a communal culture. They're like, what are you talking about? We're descendants of Abraham. We're connected to the one who's the father. If I'm connected to him, then I, how can you say I'll be free? I'm already free because I'm connected to him. But an individual culture says, no, there is actually something to you individually understanding and knowing. You're not just a Christian because your family's a Christian. You're not just a Christian because you're from a Christian nation, quote, unquote. But there is a difference in which you engage Scripture if you're thinking about it from a communal culture. Our main desire is to build up and bring honor to our community 
and not ourselves first. I don't think about my individual accomplishments. I don't think about my individual resume. I don't think about what I have to do to grow as my strengths. I think about how am I going to benefit and bring honor to the community. The community is my safety net. My community is my resume, is my strengths. And so that's one way. The other way that uh, of Western and Eastern culture are very different is a Western culture tends to be more egalitarian. And the uh, Eastern culture tends to, I say Western culture, Western culture is egalitarian, Eastern culture is hierarchical. And so in the Eastern culture, you have a very clear power distance. There are people that they have power and it goes down in the class system and you very much so respect upwardly. And if you are going to ascend, you have to, I mean, it's really hard to ascend because your family and your community is really kind of like, you are defined by that. And wherever they are and their place and social status is pretty much where you stay. But in the West, we have this egalitarian culture, which is like all men are created equal, and, and women too, and then are there, you know, should have the right to the pursuit of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I kind of botched that, but you know what I'm generally talking about. And uh, either way, so it's this idea that we all can, you know, this is, you know, the Heath Ledger and the Knight's Tale, I can change my stars, and I can, you know, work my way up in the American dream and become the person that I want to be. And lastly, we differ because we have in the West a rational, empirical culture, and in the East they have more of a spiritual or mystical culture. And so the rational, empirical, this is, the, this is what modernity means when we say modern, we're not just saying current, we're actually saying Modern is a mode of thinking, which was based off of empiricism. And empiricisms are your five empirical senses, your ability to see, taste, touch, smell, hear. Got them. All right, I don't always get it, but I did get them this time. And so we break the world down, and if I can see, taste, smell, touch, hear it, and then I can put it in a study in which I have one that is a controlled subject and one that is a subject that I'm testing something on, and I can see, oh, I can see the observation or I can hear the observation, and now I understand that if you do this, this will happen. If you don't do this, this will happen. And so then we begin to interact with the world as a way of eventually, if we understand it, if we study it, if we dissect it, if we open it up and put it back together, we eventually will be able to hands-on control the world. Where the Eastern culture comes from a much more spiritual and mystical. There are just things about life that, yes, you can cut it open and put it back together, but there's just things we don't know. There are things that we'll never know. There's things going on in the spiritual realm that are going to continue to baffle us and confound us. And yes, there is a natural order to things, but there's also something beyond that we can't quite grasp. I mean, this is the whole idea of, yes, you can do heart surgery. You can learn how to be a good heart surgeon. You can learn how to take a heart apart and put it back together. You know the one thing we've never figured out? We have no clue why it starts beating again. We have no idea how it just all of a sudden starts to go again. We can take it apart, put it back together, and then it starts. We can't really do that. I mean, yes, you can get an automatic defibrillator, but it's not even that. We don't even know how that full, like, electric shock fully then starts and perpetually goes. So, there are a couple of books that you may have heard of that I've referenced before and I think are helpful. Because when we read texts like this, we often do two things, which are the titles of these two books. One is misreading 
uh, Scripture with Western eyes, which again, are going to assume these things that we just talked about versus that this is actually an Eastern text, and we have to come from it from an ancient Near Eastern perspective to understand what it was saying to its original audience. Now, now then bring it into a modern Western perspective because it's not wrong. And so then there's also misreading Scripture with individual eyes, which we already talked about as one of the perspectives of Western culture. Now, let me say this about Western culture again. Individualism is not wrong. In fact, it's been a benefit to the world. Uh, modern thinking and science is not wrong. In fact, it has been a great benefit to the world. Rationalism, egalitarianism of the idea of all men and women are created equal and are not due to the caste that they grew out of is right and good. These are all ways in which Western culture uniquely images the image of God. And we would not know fully what God is like without the image of us Westerners. But the same is true about Eastern culture. There are ways in which the Eastern culture uniquely images the image of God, and we frankly just, it's tough for us to conceptualize because it's just not the water we swim in. And getting back to this text, all of that is a level of context for us to now dive back into verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Again, I've already likened this to Romans 12 too, where if you are someone who comes from the perspective of like, that either means you need to know the truth of the gospel and confess it, or you need to continually reform your mind and continually change your mind and give information, you were going to quote things like Romans 12 too, which is going to say, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but by being transformed by the renewing of your mind you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good and perfect, ple uh, pleasing and perfect will. Even in that sense of we are people that, I, I, so again, this is, Westerners, we love this. It's very rational. You renew your mind and you will conform your actions to the will. If I continually to put more and more helpful wisdom, truth, knowledge, information into my brain and process it, then it will eventually cause me to know the truth and it will set me free. But even in the second half of that verse, you get the idea of, hey, you renew your mind and being transformed by the renewing of the mind, and then you will be able to attest and approve what God's will is, which God's will, this is not like God's individual will for your life of like you need to marry this person or go to this city. This is God's will as in the way he has created life to work and humanity to function. Then you will understand how that all works together. In fact, that is actually what is going on in this text when he says, if you abide in my word, not just know it, not just understand it, not just be able to process it and teach it, and repeat it back. But if you abide in it, you, will, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. This word to know is the Greek word gnosko, and there are two words of knowing in the Bible, as we often understand the term. Uh, this man biblically knew his wife, 
is gnosko. This is a experiential knowing of another. And every single time I talk about gnosko, if you have been at this church for any period of time, you understand that I am now going to make my favorite quote from Goodwill Hunting. And I don't care if you're like, oh my gosh, I know this quote. I don't care. Um, this is, uh, this just so embodies. In fact, I would argue maybe the entire movie, the entire point of Goodwill Hunting is talking about the idea of information knowledge, understanding something, and experiencing something. And this is the heart of the movie. It's a moment when Will Hunting is talking to uh, a counselor or someone who is going to help him uh, through his troubled past. And it's actually something he's mandated to do by court because he's often, I mean, he's a brilliant kid. He's read every book. He's a self-made prodigy. Stop reading it. Take it down, Josh. I'm not ready yet. Because <laughs> uh, I was an actor once and I want to do it. Um, <laughs> So either way, uh, and so yes, he is one who's read every book from the library and may become a self-made genius. He solves this problem. As, he's working as a janitor at MIT, and there's this problem that the professor puts up on the board every time. He says, if you can solve this problem, then you pass my class without ever doing anything else. But no one ever solves it. And then he's just, as a janitor, working on the mirrors, and he's sitting there drawing out, and eventually he solves the formula. And nobody figures out who doesn't. It's like this kid who's from the South Boston, who's brilliant, but again, he's troubled. He continually gets in trouble with the law, and so eventually a court mandates him, you need to do some counseling. You need to work out what is going on in your life, and so he gets sent to Robin Williams, who is a counselor named Sean, and he, in the first session, he is actually not the first counselor he went to. He goes to all these counselors, and he keeps, like, using his intellect to get under their skin, and eventually they're like, I can't work with this kid, because this is his goal. He's like, man, I have to go to counseling, but I don't have to participate in it. I don't have to you know, get anything from it. I'm just showing up. And then he does the same thing to Sean or Robin Williams. He, he, and the first time he meets him, he finds something, he finds a painting on his wall, and he says, oh, look, this is what this means about you, and this is what's going on. And he talks about Robin Williams' wife or Sean's wife. And all of a sudden, you see Sean, like, transform, and he says, like, you don't know what you're talking about, and back away. And it seems like it's the same moment that's going to happen. He goes into a counselor, he gets under the skin, and the counselor says, I don't want to work with him. But instead, Robin Williams meets him at a park a few days later. And he says, hey, you know, I, uh, I thought about the fact of what you said to me the other day. He said, I couldn't stop thinking about it. But then I had a thought that made me just go to uh, sleep deeply, and I never thought about it again until this moment. And he said, you're just a kid, and you have no clue what you're talking about. And then he talks about the difference between experiential and informational knowledge. He says this. If I asked you about art, you'd probably give me the skinny on every book ever written. Michelangelo, you know a lot about him. Life's work, political aspirations, him and the Pope, sexual orientation, the whole works, right? But you can't tell me what it smells like in the Sistine Chapel. You never actually stood there and looked at that beautiful ceiling. I've seen that. If I asked you about women, you'd probably give me a syllabus of your personal favorites. You may even have been laid a few times but you can't tell me what it feels like to wake up next to a woman and feel truly happy. You're a tough kid. If I asked you about war, you'd probably throw Shakespeare at me, right? Once more into the breaches, dear friend. But you've never been near one. You've never held your best friend's head in your lap and watched him gasp his last breath, looking for you to help. If I asked you about love, you'd probably quote me a sonnet. And you've never, but you've never looked at a woman and been totally vulnerable known someone that could level you with their eyes, 
feeling like God put an angel on earth just for you, who could rescue you from the depths of hell, and you wouldn't know what it's like to be her angel, to have the love for her and be there forever, through anything, through cancer. You wouldn't know about sleeping, sitting up in a hospital room for two months holding your hand because the doctors could see in your eyes the term visiting hours doesn't apply to you. You don't know about real loss because the only, uh, it only occurs when you, have something more than, uh, that you love something more than yourself. I doubt you even dared to love anybody that much. I look at you and I don't see an intelligent, confident man. I see a cocky, scared... Did we take that one out? Good. All right, uh, I asked Josh to edit this. I see a cocky, scared kid, but you're a genius, Will. No one denies that. No one could possibly understand the depths of you. But you presume to know everything about me because of a painting of mine? You ripped my life apart. You're an orphan, right? Do you think I know the first thing about how hard your life has been, how you feel, who you are, because I read Oliver Twist? Does that encapsulate you? Personally, I don't care about all that. Because you know what? Josh and I talked about what we could edit that to. I'm not exactly sure what he chose. I'm thinking excrement, though. Um, regardless. said, I don't care about all that. Because you know what? I can't learn anything from you. I can't read in some book. When Jesus says, if you abide in my truth, and you will know, or if you abide in my word, if you abide in my life, if you abide in me, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If you, Gnosko, know the truth, not just you can tell me about Michelangelo, but you've smelled the smell of the Sistine Chapel, not just you can quote me sonnets or, or, script, or uh, plays about war, but again, you've held your dying friend's head, not just that you've thought about or had a woman or had a girlfriend or had love but, and, and knows the sonnets of Shakespeare, but that you have been in oneness with someone. That's what Jesus is talking about, saying, if you abide in me, you abide in my truth, you abide in my word, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Even as you look at, like, how he talks to the crowd from here on out, he's not going to talk to them about, like, hey, you need to keep learning stuff. But instead, he's actually going to start talking to them about how the way they live their life. Continue with me in verse 34. Well, let me go in 33 so we can get that what they said. They answered him, we're the offspring of Abraham, and we've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we will, be, we will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do, not, uh, you do what you have heard from your father. He says, hey, you're still a slave to sin. You're still in this place where you're practicing regular sin. And in this concept of slavery, first of which, I want to bring up one thing. This is not talking about when you know the truth, you will stop sinning, that you will no longer have to wrestle and grow and sanctified in sin, but rather this concept is one who practices sin, one who makes a habit of sin, one who leaves the door open of, I am not letting this part of my life be touched. And he says, hey, 
you know all the right things. You are in the right descendancy. But that isn't actually changing the fact that you aren't following the way that I've asked you to live. You're doing all these rules of the Torah, but you don't actually aren't free from these things that you're addicted to. And then he's going to talk about a slave that if you were be set free from a, a slavery, or if the sun sets you free, you'll be free indeed. What's going on there is he's evoking Torah, which there was a way that you could become an indentured servant, or what they would call a slave, in which if you had no money, if you were destitute, if you needed money to buy food for your family, you could sell yourself into indentured servitude. And then you would work for a family, and they would care for you, and they'd take care for you, but you would give them all of your service. But they had to let, your, let you go by Torah law, after seven years. So after seven years of serving, you were to be free. Now at this moment, the slave could do one of two things. They could take their freedom and go on, or they could say, no, I have a good and loving master. I love this home, and I want to be in this house forever. So then they would drive an all through the ear, and they would, that person would become forever that, one, that person's indentured servant, but also a part of their household. And so it's interesting what Jesus does here, because he says, hey, if you're a slave to sin then you're stuck in it and you can't get out. And so he starts talking about this household like, hey, you know what your household is? Your household is like sin. Or later he's going to say your father, or he's going to get even more specific and say the devil. He says, you're in the, you're in the devil. You're in, the, you're in sin's house. You're a slave there. But if the son sets you free, fascinating. He doesn't say, if all of a sudden this new patriarch comes and kicks out that patriarch and like becomes the new house, like, you know, this is now their house. It's the same house. But he says, hey, the son of now, this house of sin, is going to set you free. And what's he talking about? Because when a patriarch does pass on his household to the eldest son, all of a sudden, again, it is, I guess, in the sense of you're replacing the patriarch because there's a new sheriff in town. There's something new going on. He now establishes, yes, the same family kingdom, but he now establishes his rule, his reign, how he wants it to be. That's the only time a son can set a slave free is when he becomes the patriarch. And so it's the same concept where Jesus says, hey, there's a leader of this world that I'm coming after, but I'm greater than. He's in the world and he's powerful. But I'm coming, and I'm bringing a kingdom that is slowly but surely supplanting his. And when I am in power, I will set you free. But again, he's talking about, hey, it's not that you need to know more things. It's that you need to be freed by the Son. And then he goes on. Verse 39. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the work Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told me, the truth that I heard from you. This is not what Abraham did. You were doing the works of your father. Again, they say, hey, this is now worth adding in a third household. Jesus has no problem mixing his metaphors and getting really complex with his uh, analogies, and I don't either, so we're, me and Jesus are cool that way. So uh, Jesus is going to say, hey, there's this house of sin, but now the, house, the son is going to come, and there's going to be a new patriarch, and he's going to free you, and you will now be a, in the house of the son? No, you'll be in the house of Abraham. And he's actually saying all three of them. You're in the house of sin, you're in the house of the son, you're in the house of Abraham. He says, hey, if you're Abraham's kids, if you're in his house, if you are his servant and take on his family name, how do you know a kid 
is, is really the kid's parents. I mean, this is the whole thing. Like, every parent, like, lives in fear that they're going to be at the grocery store and their kid's going to be like, you're not my mom, and then you're just going to be like, well, this is over. And uh, you're going to get tackled by someone and uh, they're going to go to CPS and you just never see your kid again. And so you kind of like put the fear into them, like, if you ever do that, um, then you never get to come back. And, uh, but if you do that, if the kid does that, how are they going to know, hey, this is actually this person's kid, beyond doing a DNA test or whatever? They're going to look at you and look at the kid. And if you're their kid, you generally look like them. You generally have some mannerisms like them. You tend to walk the way they walked. I mean, just look at my kids, minus Quinn. Um, well, I don't know. Um, but either way. But even him, if you look close enough, or you look at myself, you look at Sharon, you eventually see, oh yeah, these are your kids. These are miniature versions of you. They say what you say. They do what you do. They walk what you walk. They say things like, either way, like I do. <laughs> and so he's saying in this moment, hey, you're in the household of Abraham. You don't look like Abraham. Abraham walked in faith. Abraham saw some people coming on the road, and he showed them hospitality. Abraham fought for the oppressed. Abraham prayed and prayed that if there was one, if there was a, a hundred righteous men, if there were 50 righteous men, if there were 10 righteous men in this town that God was saying it's time to destroy and judge, then will you spare it? Which is Sodom and Gomorrah, by the way. And he says, hey, Abraham had faith and love and patience and goodness, and what you're doing doesn't look like Abraham. The point of growing in wisdom and understanding and knowledge is to continually, as Scripture says, the goal of our instruction is love. That we would become ones who abide in the truth and know and certify that the way that He has taught us to grow and walk and become like Him is life and to, life to the full. And the reason I really want to get on this and really want to drive this home is because, again, we live in a modern Western American church context. And in the modern Western American church, we, in many ways, uniquely and beautifully image God to the world because there's parts of God that He has put in our culture that are not in others. But just like everyone's culture, there's ways that it creates blind spots in which you never even know they're there. Blind spot was always a confusing term to me because I think of blind spots on a car. I know where my blind spots are in the car. I know to check them. An actual blind spot is a spot you're not aware of because you've just adapted that spot being in your mind and your mind has worked around it and you don't know it's there. And a way that this often happens is that, first of all, we call what we're doing here church. We call this building church. And then when we go to church, quote unquote, 
we have to ask ourselves, what is the point of coming to church? Which again, I'm going to stop using church because I always intentionally say Sunday gathering. We are coming to a Sunday gathering of the church, of the called out ones, of the family of God. But at a Sunday gathering, what is the main point? And actually, we had a really great time to talk about that and think about that culturally because we just came out of COVID. And in COVID, we had this big question of if you can't meet together, if you can't gather in large groups, what is church? Is it something you can put online? Is it an exchange of content? You come to hear from someone truly wise. And from that person's wisdom, you are set free. And that really became a point where like, we had to wrestle with, like, is that the point of what we're doing here? Is church a moment where you come and hear a sermon, hear a teaching? Is that the main event? Or is church a family? Is church a group of people that Monday through Sunday are walking and abiding in the Word and the person of Jesus and certifying that this is the way He's taught us to live? Are pastors mainly teachers or CEOs? Are churches mainly small businesses that need to be grown and scaled in order that more and more people might quote-unquote hear the gospel but never be in a family that disciples them into it because we're just sitting straight ahead at the person who's delivering content and then going out and saying, hmm, sermon was good, it was okay, it was phenomenal, it changed my life for a day. The word pastor is the same etymology, etymology as pasture. It is ones who are in the pasture caring for the sheep. The primary thing a shepherd does is not teach the sheep. It's to care, to bind up the wounds, to feed, to lead the sheep. By the way, that's not just the calling of the office of pastor. That's the calling of the gift of pastoring, which is amongst all of us because that is part of the spiritual gifts. Pastoring, shepherding, we're all called to it. Church is not a Sunday gathering. It is a family. Your deepest need is not to come and hear expositional, exegetical teaching. Let me explain that real quick, because some of you know what that is, some of you don't know what that is. Expositional, exegetical teaching is actually a primary way that most people in the American church, and even us, do teach. It is a way that when you teach exegetically, it means you're going by through Scripture verse by verse, which is what we do when we go through like, the book of John, or we go through Acts, or we went through several books in the past, and that's one of the primary ways we teach is exegetically, exegeting from the text, walking through it verse by verse, word by word. This is what this word means. This is gnosko. This is why it means this about goodwill hunting, and this is why now you can apply that to your Scripture or to your life. And then exposition actually is in that too. You exegete a word. This is what the word means. This is what the context is. And now you exposit it. You bring it clear. You make it, claim, make it plain. Actually, that'd be more of the goodwill hunting quote. That's the exposition. Gnosko is the exegesis. The goodwill, uh, uh, goodwill hunting quote is the exposition. It is a wonderful way 
to teach and understand the Scripture. It is completely modern and Western. You don't get it really at all before the modern Western culture. Because we, again, we have something where like, if I can take it, if I can dissect it, if I can study it, I understand what this word means, and I understand the context of this word, and I understand all these contexts work together, I can now expose and understand what's going on. But if you look how Jesus taught, he was just like, hey, here's a random puzzle. Knock yourselves out. If you have ears to hear, which by the way, you don't, <laughs> hear. And he teaches in parables, and he teaches in questions, and it wasn't unique. They all did that. That's why often when they say, they ask the question, I love this new question, is it true that you're a Samaritan who has a demon? Are you, is it true you're a dummy dumb face and you're dumb? Um, but then Jesus equally gets snarky back when he's just like, if I said I didn't know my father, I know my father, and if I said I didn't know my father, I'd be lying because I do know my father. So I could lie. I could be like you and lie because I don't know my father, but, but I do know my father, so that would be a lie. Um, it's just like this real like sixth grade girl interaction here. <laughs> uh, uh, come on, Kent, it's 2023. That was sexist. Um, <laughs> Either way, it is true. Sixth grade, I, I have boys, and they do the same. They're catty. <laughs> Either way. Either way. <laughs> so then, Kent, uh, let's bring this home. Great. All right. We don't primarily learn and be transformed, or as I've said many times, and as we say at this place, information is not transformation. They are not equivocal. We are the most informed generation of all time. You have every sermon in America that will be dropped into your phone by this afternoon. Maybe ours, if Josh does it, because he's great at doing it. If it's left up to me, it doesn't show up for about another week. Um, you can get every church father's writings on your phone. We are the most informed generation of all time. We are not the most transformed generation of all time. Information does not equal transformation. And so what does? Yes, you need to know truth. You need to hear truth. The way that you come to understand that you are believing lies is you hear truth. And all of a sudden you realize, wait, that's not what I think. Is what I think right or is that right? You need to encounter truth. But you need to experience truth. Well, that's great, Kent. How do I experience truth? I'm glad you asked. You have to. There's a few ways, but I'm going to focus on one, and we focused on it before. I don't care. This is greatest hits week. Um, you have to walk in a family that is trying to walk in the light together. You have to be in a group of people, not just to protect you from going off into crazy land, which everyone, by the way, will have about seven to 24 times in their life where you will be tempted to go off into crazy land. And you need people around you to tell you you're going off into crazy land. That's one reason to walk in a family of God, because without them, you will go off into crazy land. Everyone does it. It's also because you can't be taught love. You can't be taught grace. You can be shown love 
and shown grace. But I can't tell you you need to sacrifice, sacrificially love this person. I mean, you can say that, but again, I give you this great teaching, and here's the pattern that happens. I hear a great teaching, I'm like, man, I got to put that into action, so I'm now going to enact my will. And I can do it again for like a day, a week, a month, a year, I'm out. And so I'm like, man, I need more teaching. I need something else to inspire me. So I get some more inspirational teaching or an inspirational song with beautiful lyrics that really moves me. And so I put that into my head, and then it goes directly to my will, and then it peters out. And then I need to get more in my head, and it goes more to my will, and more in my head, and more to my will, and eventually those circuits burn out. And you're like, this is pointless. Because what it never does is it never goes from the moment of it's in my head, and then I wrong someone. I completely sin against them, maybe intentionally. And they come closer to me. They treat me as one who's loved and honorable. Or someone, God forbid in this culture, sacrifices for me. They do something that really puts them out. All on account of me. And in that moment, I feel weak, and I feel stupid, and I feel the reality that this person actually might love me. Here's the reality about love. You can't be loved while you are doing well. Love is imp impossible to experience if you are always a benefit to people, if you are always funny, if you are always helpful, if you are always on top of it, if you are always successful. You are, it is impossible to love that person because you can only be loved when you fail. You can only be loved when you become a burden. Love is intrinsically bearing other people's burdens. If you never become one, you are, you are never loved. And so people can bear burdens. They can begin to love you. And then all of a sudden, that starts to actually transform your heart. And then it begins to integrate into your soul. And eventually, it slowly but surely begins to act out of your will. I love this person, not because I learned about it, but because I've been shown such love by the Father, by the Son, and by my brother and sister, that now I begin to want to love other people. By the way, love is not you being really excited to show up and bear someone's burdens. It's you showing up and bearing someone's burdens, regardless of how you feel. If by, like you always say, like, do you want to love someone? Like, you know, like, oh, I wasn't loving them because I didn't really want to do it. If by wanting to do it, that's how you define love, I have never loved any of you, ever. Because um, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do anything. I, well, I do want to do lots of stuff for me. And I want my me time, and sometimes I do that. But if I show up, it is explicitly because I am practicing the fact that I, regardless of what I would want to do, I'm going to believe that Jesus said I would actually be living life to the full if I showed up and loved and served and bared the burdens of another and if I poured myself out. You live in a community. You continually believe or work to believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that God is who he says he is, and that his words actually bring, do bring truth in life. 
And I mentioned last week I was reading a Dallas Willard book, and in it he talks about, hey, the way that you believe is you continually put truth into your mind. That actually is the getting truth in your mind. You can, then you continually experience truth. You experience it in reality around other people who show it to you. And he says, the belief comes from that. You cannot control belief. You can merely put the truth into your mind and meditate it in on your mind, which is, again, why we talked about all of last week. You should be reading Scripture. You should be hearing teaching. You should be interacting with truth. But if that's all you're doing, if it's just continually getting a bigger and bigger MDiv-level knowledge, then transformation, the goal of our instruction is love, not the ability to win every debate, not the ability to know everything about every systematic theological point. And so, it is regularly putting truth in my mind, experiencing truth in my community so that I might believe it, and then I repent and follow. And repent is a really churchy word. This is simply what it means. I continually let go of my kingdom. I continually let go of mine, and I say, Jesus' way of life to the full must be better than mine. How am I repenting when I want to do stuff on myself? I'm saying, even though I want to do this, I'm going to show up and love this person because I am going to fight to believe that this is actually true, even though everything in my heart says this is true. But yet, I have experienced when someone has shown up for me that that is so powerful that that begins to move in my heart and my soul, and it begins to come out my will. And slowly but surely, I become someone who joyfully gives, sacrifices, loves in the image of Jesus. I become someone who shows peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. If you abide in my love, abide in my word, abide in me, you will experientially know the truth, and the truth will set you free. In the moment of communion, we practice that. We practice a practice, not just a knowledge of Jesus died for me, but Jesus had his body broken for me, and he had his blood spilt for me. And so now the body broken, the blood spilled has now covered me, and I am free. I am released from my sin. That is, again, something that is how you become a part of the family of God. And nothing that you do now that you like go out and experience the truth, by the way, is then now, okay, now prove that you, it actually took. However, when it does take, it does start to come out. Yeah, I got time for this. Dallas Willard, again, one of his famous quotes. He always says, hey, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. I give you grace, you don't, can't earn it. But that grace can then drive effort to then walk in the light and walk in the truth. And so again, we're going to take a tangible practice of taking the truth of that Jesus has died, sacrificed, loved us in the midst of our sin, and freed us from our sin, so that we would continually introduce that into our heads and experience it in our communities, 
and believe and give up our kingdom because his kingdom is life and life to the full. And you come forward, take the bread, tear it off, and dip it in the cup. Come down center aisles or turn down the side. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would give us a community of people that are able to experientially love and experientially show grace to one another so that we might be people who understand love and grace, not because we've read about it, not because we've studied it, not because we have put it in an experiment and shown it to be true, but rather we have actually experienced it and become people that your truth is experienced in our hearts, is integrated into us, into our soul, and becomes something that our will is to do the will of the Father because he has so loved us that he gave his only son so that we might not perish but have eternal life, our life to the full. In Jesus' name, amen.